some ways, it seems odd that there would, I look at these ridiculous you know, billboards with my name on them. I'm thinking, wow, because, you know, most of my life I was not, uh, I have not been a Christian for even half my life. Uh, most of it, I was not a Christian. I was working cases in Los Angeles County and I work um, unsolved murders, um, cold cases. The reason why they're cold is because we have a statute of limitations on every kind of crime except for murder. So even in Kentucky, if you do a robbery over a certain period of years, we will no longer be able to, to work that case because it is going to expire. There's a statute of limitations on every crime except for murder, which stays open. So if we don't solve a murder in the first 10 years, we can come after it again. And my cases are usually between 20 and 30 years old. So there are cases that are more difficult to solve, and that's why they usually end up on television. So, but I, I learned some things in that process of getting to a point where we could solve these cases that helped me to examine whether or not Christianity was true. was not raised in the church, had no Christians in my life. Uh, had, you know, my parents aren't Christians. I uh, wasn't raised around Christians. Didn't really meet anybody that, that, that you know, could really express. I, I knew some Christians. I knew two kinds of Christians. I knew police officers who were Christians, and if you asked them, why is Christianity true? Why do you trust the Bible? Why do you believe in a resurrection? Any kind of miraculous event. They could not really provide an answer, and their answers were pretty lame. The other kind of Christian that I knew were the people who were taken to jail, because I'll be honest with you, a lot of those people, we would take them to jail, and on the way to jail, they would tell us they were Christians. And we would think, Really? So my partners and I, we would mock Christians because we most of the time encountered them in jail interviews. And so we were like, hey, you know, I'm not really interested in that kind of, whatever this is, I have no interest in it. But I did start to take a serious look at it when my wife became interested. And, and we were together about 18 years before either one of us became Christians. And I want to show you some of the process that we went through, that I went through at least, before we actually made a decision. Now, my son has been raised in the church, and he has my name, so we use the same name over and over and over again. I, I'd like to say that we are the George Foreman of law enforcement, okay? Because he knows he's, he was born in my academy, and I was, he uses the same tools, same name tag that I used before him. I was born in my dad's academy. He has the same name, same tools, same set. We've been doing this for 57 years, and I will tell you that Jimmy feels pressure right now because he knows he has to have a son The name's already picked out. And then this kid's got to go into the academy and become a police officer. What are the odds of that, right? So he does feel a little pressure. Now, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I was asked to do a short scene in a movie called God's Not Dead 2. Now, this is a movie that really only gave me about six minutes to make the case for Christianity. Now, we're going to take a little more time this morning to do that. I'm going to take the information we started with in that movie, and we're just going to kind of blow it out a little bit so you can see how strong the case really is for what you believe. Because to me, it all came down to the reliability of the, of the Gospels. Could I trust that they were telling me something true about Jesus of Nazareth? Now, I've written a book. I did bring him here, but I'm not here to sell you a book. Yes, I'm happy to sign books, but I'm not here to sell you. You don't need this book. I'm going to send you everything you need for free. Now, of course, it's always easier to get things in more depth if you write a book. So I got stuck writing a book. I also have kids' books for 8 to 12-year-olds. This has been the most fun we've had is creating an entire academy for young people. But my mom will not read the other books. She only reads these kids' books. I don't know what that's about. Now, I, I, I want to teach you a, a simple principle so we can get started. Here's the principle. 
Possible does not matter. And there's a difference between possible and reasonable. The standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt, because if it was, you would never convict anyone. The standard of proof is much lower than possible doubt. It's reasonable doubt. And that's, that's a good, it's actually a good reason for that. Because anything is possible. It's possible you're not even here right now. It's possible that, that you actually woke up this morning and on the way to your car, you were abducted by aliens and don't even know it. Because they've got you in an alien-induced coma right now, and you're having this group experience like you're in the Matrix together, when in actuality, you're being examined on a table by aliens right now. That is possible. How would you know if it's not possible? Well, I would pinch myself. That's part of the coma. I mean, it's part of the whole experience. You could now, it's, although it's possible, we would say it's not reasonable, right? Because there's a difference between possible and reasonable. And you don't live in the world of possibles. Because if you did, you would be paralyzed with doubt and fear. I'll tell you, every day, someone wakes up in the morning. Someone in this country goes to their, their key, put their key in their car in the driveway, turns the key to their ignition, and the car blows up in their face. That happens all the time. Yet you're still going to turn your key tomorrow morning. Why? Because you're not living under the realm of possible. You live in the realm of reasonable. So we have to be reasonable when we're examining any case, including the case for Christianity. That is the judicial standard. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I say that so you keep this in mind today, throughout the day, and even tomorrow morning. I'll be here for the first service. We only have one service, so we'll be here for one service, and we'll talk about this issue again. But how do we decide what is reasonable? I'm going to teach you a skill set, but in order to do it, we're going to have to work a case together. Okay? You ready? Let's do this. This young man has been accused of killing his girlfriend with this baseball bat. He actually does have feet. You just can't see him right there, okay? He's not the footless killer. Now, the question is, how do we make a case? There's only two ways to make a case, two forms of evidence. This is another skill set you need. We only use direct evidence and indirect evidence. There's no third kind. It's direct evidence and indirect evidence. There's another word for indirect evidence. It's called circumstantial evidence. Now, I think when you hear that term, you think to yourself, oh, that's the crummy evidence, right? Because you've heard this said how many times? Oh, all they have is a circumstantial case. Oh, that case, it's purely circumstantial. You hear this all the time, right? I'm here to tell you that I've got to train that out of you before we can even begin this. So we'll take a look at this case. How do we make it? Well, we can make it directly or indirectly. Directly, we would need someone. uh, Only one thing counts as direct evidence. Did you know this? Only one thing counts as direct evidence, and that is eyewitness statements. Eyewitness statements. That's it. Nothing else counts. Oh, how about DNA? Indirect evidence. How about fingerprints? Indirect evidence. Behaviors that he exhibits? Indirect evidence. Everything is indirect except for eyewitnesses. Now, if we want to make a direct case here, we need an eyewitness. Now, he, he'll tell you something about this crime. After all, he is there. He says he was an eyewitness. But can you trust anything this guy says to you? That's really the issue, right? I would suggest we need a different kind of witness, somebody who is not our suspect in the case, maybe somebody across the street who will tell us, yeah, I've known this guy for, look, I've known the woman who got killed for years. And, and she, she was a very nice lady. She lived across the street from me. She's a young girl. And she's always fighting with her boyfriend. It was just terrible. It was ridiculous. And on this particular day, I heard the fight. I looked up across the street. I could see in her living room. I could see that they were fighting. And sure enough, I see that he punches her in the face. Then he knocks her to the ground, gets a bat out. He starts beating her with a bat. You saw that? Yeah. Well, do you happen to know who this guy is? Oh, yeah. Oh, you know him. Absolutely. They, they grew up in our neighborhood together. They, they've been dating since they were in like high school. They, they've been together forever. And, 
and I've known him. As a matter of fact, we are a tight neighborhood. We do holidays together. And on the day of the murder, this guy was wearing the shirt that I gave him for Christmas two years ago. That's a good witness, right? Now, if she holds up in court under cross-examination, I could make this entire case with one piece of evidence, her eyewitness statement. And this would be called a direct evidence case. Are we clear? Okay. Now, let's change the scenario. What if she is not wearing the shirt that uh, he is not wearing, the shirt that she gave him for Christmas two years ago? And what if on the day of the murder, he now has a mask on his face? All she can say now is, the guy's about the same size as the boyfriend that I know. That's all she can really say. Now, how many of you are willing to convict this guy right now? I agree. So now we can't make it with an eyewitness because she can't identify him. We have to make it a different way. We have to use some indirect evidence. We go out and knock on his door and we ask this guy, hey, what were you doing on the the day of the murder? He says, well, I was out drinking with two of my friends. Really? What are your buddies' names? We go out and we talk to those guys, and they tell us they haven't seen him in weeks. So now he's about the right shape, and he's lying about his alibi. How many of you are willing to convict him right now? Nobody? Really? Because we're in California. At least one person. Thank you. All right. Uh, we do the search warrant at his house, and we discover in his house he's got a bat, a baseball bat. And it's an unusual baseball bat because in the thick part of the bat, it's nicked up and dinged up like he's been using it as a club. And, and we look for biological material, you know, blood or skin tissue, any kind of transfer. And it's clean because he has soaked his bat in bleach. Why would anyone soak their baseball bat in bleach if not to cover up biological material? So now you have a soaked baseball bat. You've got a B.O. alibi. Now tell me, how many of you are willing to convict him now? Oh, suddenly you guys are all convinced. (laughs) Right? Let's go a little further for those of you who aren't. Turns out that he's got a pair of blue jeans in the house also, and they are dirty, but they are clean around the thigh, and they luminesce. This is a chemical called luminol. We spray it on certain surfaces. It'll glow under certain body fluids, blood. It also glows for certain detergents, though. And so we, it's, it's negative for blood, negative for any of that, but it is glowing at the knees because apparently he has spot-cleaned something successfully off the knee. Now, the pants are dirty everywhere else. What is he trying to clean? If he's just trying to clean dirt, just throw them in the, in the washer. So he's apparently trying to clean something other than dirt off the knees. Spot clean pants, bleached bat, B.O. alibi. How many of you feel like he's our guy now? Raise your hand. A little more confidence, right? Let's go a couple more steps. There's no sign of forced entry at the house. So whoever got in this house did not have to kick a door or break a window. That means that she either voluntarily let this person in or they had a key to get in. Only three people had a key, and he is one of those three. She had a key. Her mom, who passed away a couple months earlier, had a key, and he has a key. So I explain why there's no forced entry. And when you talk to him, he admits they've had a very volatile relationship, that he's up and down, he loses his temper, he he always apologizes afterwards, he has struck her on a number of occasions, he always apologizes immediately afterwards, and she understands that he means nothing by it, it's just his temper, she always takes him back. And he admits that on the day of this murder, he lost his temper, and he threatened to kill her, and he punched her pretty good. Because he had found out on that day that she had been cheating on him. Now, first of all, who would cheat on this guy? Right? I tell you, if there's one guy you probably shouldn't cheat on, it's this guy. So, 
How many of you feel good about him right now? Dads, if this is your daughter, how many of you feel good about this guy right now? Is he your guy? Is he the killer? Raise your hand if he's a killer. What in the world is, what is wrong, what's wrong with the rest of you people? You realize, this is in California, you cannot convict this guy, I don't care what I say. In Texas, he's already on death row, okay? You're apparently somewhere between Texas and California on the spectrum of leniency. Now, the witness also said that he had feet, and when he ran out, he was in a particular kind of work boot, a work boot that had a, a leather uh, band on the outside that was vertical, and she thought that was kind of interesting. And, and you do some research on this. There's only one manufacturer of that kind of work boot. Only one uh, company makes it, and they only sell it at one store anywhere in the county. Not popular. They've only sold like 30 pairs in the last two years. But who do you think's got one of those 30 pairs? Our guy. Now, if you think about it, there's almost a, a bit of, of mathematics that are going on here. He's got a 1 in 30 relationship to that boot. He's got a 1 in 3 relationship to the key. What are the odds that one of these guys is also one of these guys? See the problem? Now, also, uh, if you'd have gotten this a few minutes later, he would have been dead because he was getting ready to kill himself at the time of the search warrant. We know that because there's a half-completed suicide note on the counter. Because he was getting ready to, to, he says in the suicide note, he did something horrific the day before, which was the day of the murder. Something he cannot forgive himself for. Something that changes the future of himself, changes the future of the people he cares the most about. But, because you got there a little bit too early, he didn't get a chance to finish it. So, you don't know what it is he's feeling bad about. Also, the witness says that when he drove off, he was in an unusual car like a, a canary yellow 70s, like an early 70s model Volkswagen Carmangia. Do you guys even know what a Volkswagen Carmangia looks like? Okay, so raise your hand if you know what a Carmangia looks like. Everyone look around. These are the old people. <laughs> they are. All of them are old people. You notice that? Okay. So you, lift this, you, know, you do some research on this. There's like very few operational 70s Carmen Ghia is even on the road anymore. But what's in his garage, do you think? A yellow 1972 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Now, I think at this point, it's fair for us to ask the question, is it possible that he's innocent? Of course, yes. I always say yes to any time anyone says, is it possible blank? Yes. But that's not what we're after. We're not after, is it possible? We are after, is it reasonable? And there's a big difference between these two things. So, look, I can explain this. Maybe it's just possible that he is the most unlucky guy in the world. I mean, on the day that he did not commit a murder, all these things happen to align perfectly to make it look like he did. He's just incredibly unlucky. Or it's just more reasonable, I think, that he is the one common causal factor that actually unifies all of this evidence, explains it perfectly. So it's not a matter of being incredibly unlucky. He's just incredibly guilty. And this is how we make cases in America every day. 70% of cases are entirely circumstantial. All of my cases have been entirely circumstantial. We never lost. This is powerful evidence. And this is what a circumstantial case looks like. Now, I also want to tell you that I love circumstantial cases for a couple of reasons. One is that, and and we do this all the time, if I was going to do these in a trial, and here's an illustration from... uh, Cold case Christianity. I'll just tell you, I, I came out of the arts before I became a police officer. I have a bachelor's degree in design and then a master's degree in architecture from UCLA. <laughs> and then I became a police officer. It is architecture, right? We have, we have somebody here who works in architecture? Okay, then I don't need to say any more. Now you know why I'm a police officer, okay? 
But having done that, I do get to illustrate my own books. So this is the illustration. And if we're going to do this in a criminal trial, we're not going to do this with just eight pieces of evidence. We're going to do this with 80 pieces of evidence. This is why we call this death by a thousand paper cuts. Because it really is that. And you might look at this and say, well, Jim, I don't think that's all that much. Of course it's not. It's the entire collection that's all that much. So uh, judges actually instruct jurors to treat circumstantial evidence with the exact same weight and authority that you treat direct evidence. There's actually a jury instruction in California. Here it is. It basically just says both direct and circumstantial evidence are acceptable types of evidence, and neither is entitled to any greater weight than the other. So stop calling these things just circumstantial cases unless you're willing to say, oh, all it is is a direct evidence case. Well, you're not going to say that. These are the same weight. Also, I, I love indirect cases because witnesses lie all the time. Indirect evidence is not trying to deceive me. I might misinterpret it, but it's not trying to deceive me. Witnesses sometimes are. So it's important for us to be able to know that difference. So I learned a long time ago, you do not trust eyewitnesses. You cannot, they are so untrustworthy, you just cannot trust eyewitnesses. They'll lie to you about all kinds of things for any kind of number of reasons. So what I've learned to do instead of trusting eyewitnesses is to test eyewitnesses. Now, if they pass the test, I, I, do, I will trust them. As a matter of fact, if they pass this test, judges will instruct jurors that they must trust them. And what is the test built on? It's built on these four questions. It's actually built on 13 or 14 questions, but it all comes down to these four categories. To make it easier for you, I'll give it to you in single words. If a witness was really there to see what he's saying he saw, if he can be verified in some way, if he has been honest and accurate over time and has not changed his story, and if he has not possessed a bias that would cause him to lie, then you are to trust his statement. So I thought, as an investigator looking at the Gospels for the first time, could I apply this test to the authors of Scripture. And if I did, would they pass? That's how I became a Christian. So let's just jump in real quickly. I'll just give you a kind of a 30,000-foot brief uh, overview of it. The first question is, were they really there early enough to have been eyewitnesses? Now, this is my dad's case from 1972. That's my dad right there in that goofy, ridiculous polyester suit with that tie. Pretty hideous tie right there, too. This guy here had been accused of killing a 10-year-old in our city uh, on Thanksgiving Day in 1972. Now, you can see it's 1974 by the time of this press clipping. They're walking him over to the trial. He confessed to the entire crime, about a 1,000-page transcript, and none of it is true. He wasn't even there. He is not our killer. This case was open until about three or four months ago. And we solved it using um, ancestry DNA. You've read about it all the time now, right? Everyone's using it. So I always say this to every audience. Thank you so much for wanting to research your ancestry because you knuckleheads are putting your DNA into the system and I'm taking your family members to jail like on a weekly basis. <laughs> it's awesome. So we didn't identify this guy until his daughter put her ancestry in the database in and sure enough, he pops up. We're just one, one, one child away from the killer. So, in the end, you cannot be the killer if you weren't there. And this guy was not there. Now, I suspected the same thing was true of the authors of the Gospels. You have this event called the ministry of Jesus, and then you have this timeline when eventually at a council called the Council of Laodicea, the early church comes together and decides which Gospels should be in our canon. 
well, how do I know how early these things were written to begin with? If they're written over here on the timeline, late in history, they cannot be considered eyewitness accounts. They might have some truth in them, but they cannot be considered eyewitness accounts because the eyewitnesses would have been dead for 330 years. So, so I needed to know, is this where these were written? And there are lots of skeptics who would argue for late dating. Uh, probably one of the most famous skeptics who's written on the biblical matters is Bart Ehrman. He's got a number of books in which he makes a variety of claims. We'll talk about some of them today. And, and if you look at these books, you, you, if, look, if he's right and these are late, if any of these skeptics are right, if it's this late particularly, then you can forget about it. They're not eyewitness accounts because those people have been dead. Now, on the other hand, if these were written early, early enough to actually be close to the action, they could at least pass the first test. Were these people present to see what they said they saw? Look, if you want to lie about Jesus, here's how you do it. You wait till everyone who knows the truth is dead. Then you can say anything you want. Is that what happened here? Because it's not just that they're early enough to have been eyewitnesses themselves. It's that they're early enough to be writing in front of other people who would have been eyewitnesses who would know if they are telling the truth or not. I needed to know how early are these. Now, I think that I can make a circumstantial case for the early dating of the, of the Gospels, and we'll do it together. That's why I teach you about circumstantial evidence first. For those of you who are Sunday school graduates, what's the book written by Luke in which he describes everything the apostles did after Jesus ascended into heaven? That is called the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, does Luke ever describe the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? No, it's missing. Why wouldn't Luke include that given that the gospel authors say that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple? Wouldn't you want to include in your story that it actually came true? It would make Jesus look like an accurate predictor. Not only that, there's a siege of Jerusalem that preceded the destruction of the temple that was horrific in history. It's very memorable. If you're going to write anything about Jerusalem and leave out this siege, it would be like writing anything around the time of New York in 2001 and leaving out the Twin Tower attack. Why would you do that? Why would you leave your book with Paul still alive in captivity in Rome when we know he dies just a couple of years later, right? Why not mention how he died? It's actually quite interesting how he dies. Why not mention how Peter dies? Why not mention how James, the brother of, of, of Jesus, dies? We know when these things occur, and we know how they occur, but Luke never describes any of them. And these are the three most important people in the entire book of Acts. Now, look, Luke describes the death of Stephen. I think I can understand why he might do that. But he describes also the death of James, the brother of John. I'm sorry, that dude's a nobody. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He's leading the entire church. He's the head of the church council on Acts 15. Why in the world would you mention James, the brother of John's death, Psalm 44, but leave out James, the brother of Jesus' death in 61? Now, one reasonable possibility is that none of this stuff has happened yet. If none of this stuff has happened yet, then you can't talk about it. Let's test that. Just as I'm postulating a potential date here, let's put the writing of the book of Acts just one year prior to the first missing event. I could easily put it 10. I think it actually is closer to 10, but I'm going to put it at 1 just to be conservative. Now, let's test that. There's a piece of evidence we can look at internally that will help us a little bit. It's here in the book that um, Paul writes to... Oh, by the way, we know that he writes two books, right? He writes two books. Uh, he says in my former book, Theophilus... I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, we have two books. We have the book called Acts, and we have the book called Luke. That's not a trick question, right? 
Luke wrote two books. Now, we know he wrote the first book, Gospel of Luke, first, because he tells us this in this first verse of Acts. So we can kind of tell where they go on the timeline. The question is, when do they go on the timeline? So I'm placing them right now at, 50, at 60 and 53. I think that those are, are conservative dates. I think they're actually earlier than that. And I can make a case, but it's much longer, so I'm not going to do that. But let me just show you where I got to this, okay? There's the evidence I wanted to show you in Paul's book to, to Timothy. Now, I will tell you that Bart Ehrman denies this is a Pauline letter. That's a whole other issue. I don't agree with him. But here's the letter he writes to Timothy. It's being written, pastoral letters are usually dated in the 60s. I actually think that this letter is earlier than this. I think this letter is actually a letter in the 50s. I can make a case for that, too, but we'll go back on that some other time. But here my point is, there's a piece of evidence you may have been missing. He's writing to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, hey, take care of your church leaders because they deserve to be compensated. They work hard. They should get some kind of salary. I know this, Timothy, because my Bible tells me so. Wouldn't you like to know what Paul is holding in his hand as his Bible? Because he kind of tells you here, he says, the Scripture says this. When he quotes two passages of Scripture to make his case, one is in Deuteronomy, do not muzzle the ox while it's trading out the grain. The other is the worker deserves his wages. That is not an Old Testament quote. That is a New Testament quote. He's putting a New Testament quote right next to the other one. He's calling it Scripture. The word for that in the Greek is written. Is the word written. He's suggesting that there are two lines of evidence you could look at, one from the Old Testament and one from the New but that means he's got the New Testament available to make this kind of a claim. There's actually another larger parallel here because he's writing to the Corinthian church about 10 years earlier. He tells the Corinthian church and reminds them how to do the Lord's Supper. And in this reminder of how to do the Lord's Supper, he quotes the only New Testament passage that describes it this way. He's quoting again the Gospel of Luke, a much larger section of Luke's Gospel from chapter 22. So we know that Luke's gospel is available to him, and that makes sense in our timeline. But look, now we're here at 53 for Luke's gospel. What I love about um, forensic statement analysis, which is what we do with suspects who are in custody, we're examining word use. And one of the word uses we look at are optional words. When you use an optional word, that's important to us because you don't have to use that word, so your choice matters. So I'm always looking at adverbs and adjectives. If you look at the first verse of Luke's gospel, he tells us that he is not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to all the things Paul did. He even slips into first person in the book of Acts. But he had access to the people who were eyewitnesses to what Jesus did, and he tells us this in the first verse. But he uses an interesting set of adjectives and adverbs that give away some truth. Let me show them to you. He says, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated... Everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have, I may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, look at this first optional word. It's here, carefully. He didn't have to put that in there. He wants you to know that his work is careful. Why? Well, if there's another work out there that's not quite so careful, this would distinguish his from theirs. There is another early work. It's called the Gospel of Mark. If you look at Mark's Gospel and compare it to Luke's Gospel, you'll see that Luke's is much more careful. It's much more robust. Here, he uses another um, adjective, most excellent. Why? Well, we know Theophilus is somebody important. That's, we've looked at that title in other ancient Greek texts, and it usually means somebody of a position of leadership, potentially a position of leadership in a city. Hard to know. No one really knows for sure who Theophilus is. 
But apparently he's somebody important. But the third word that got my attention, that's over here. Do you see it? He wrote an orderly account. That word in the Greek means correct chronological order. It does not mean tidy or... No, it means correct chronological order. Why would you need to tell me that? If you're writing a history of anybody, don't I assume that the history is in chronological order? Otherwise, how, how can I know with certainty, Theophilus, what you've been taught if it's all in the wrong order? And why would you think you need to say that? Well, maybe there's another account out there that's early in history that's not in the right order. There is. It's called the Gospel of Mark. And we know that because Papias describes it this way, an early church bishop who says that Mark wrote his gospel at the feet of Peter. And when he did that, he wasn't, he's, Papias says, it is accurate if not orderly. And if you compare Mark to Luke, you'll see it's not in the same order. There are some small changes. But it appears that Luke is saying, hey, I've got everyone's account, including Mark's. As a matter of fact, who do you think he quotes verse for verse, line for line, more than any other source? Mark. But he's got it in the right order. And he's telling us this, but that means he has to have access to Mark's gospel first. Now we are well within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And that's the problem, really. When I'm looking at timelines, I'm trying to figure out, is the killer available to do this crime? Here we're looking at it and saying, is the author available to really be an eyewitness? This does not mean it's true, but it is harder to tell a lie if you're telling it early in the region. Does that make sense? Second thing, well, has it been verified in some way? What would we even use to verify certain witness statements? We have a number of ways we verify witness statements, but it's always a small percentage of the witness statement. If you told me, hey, I saw him lean across the counter and pull his gun out and, and scream at the teller. Okay, great. Well, how could I verify that? What could I, how could I corroborate that? Well, I could go to the counter and see if his palm print is on the counter. Sure enough, it is. Okay, now I've got a witness who's been corroborated. But does, does a palm print tell you anything about what clothing this guy's wearing? No. What, what he said? No. That he had a gun? No. What kind of gun it is? No. Every piece of corroborative evidence gives you a small percentage of the eyewitness statement. And we use that in trials all the time. And we say, hey, that's good enough. But now we've got to ask the same question here. Do we have any touch point percentage corroboration of the of Gospels? Well, yeah, we do. One way we could look at it is simply, if we can start with archaeology, but I, I know for me, I was one of those skeptics who said, okay, archaeology is only going to be one piece of it, right? Because I can find archaeological evidence for 19th century England. That does not mean Peter Pan is true. Right? But I, I should find, but if, if there's no archaeological evidence for anything described in Peter Pan, then I'm like, this guy clearly does not know what he's talking about. Now, what I see is that there have been skeptics who over the years have doubted the scriptures because the only place you would find some of this data was in the New Testament. 150 years ago, these were the claims that were doubted by skeptics, most of them in Luke's Gospels or in Luke's Book of Acts. But if you look at them all, now they've all been verified by archaeology. I could do this over and over again, just give you a number of claims of the New Testament that were once doubted but have since been verified by archaeology. Now, this is important because I don't... It, can I verify every detail of the New Testament with archaeology? No. Of course not. But I'll tell you this. The Book of Mormon includes a thousand-year history of the North American continent from 600 B.C. to 400 A.D. Cities, civilizations, tools, monetary systems, 
hundreds of names of people who lived and were important. There's not a single foundation, a single piece of any archaeological evidence anywhere on the continent that any of that stuff ever happened. Not a single Mormon name etched in stone anywhere on this continent. Okay, I get it. I'm not going to have everything, but I should have something. But more importantly, I like sometimes to ask other witnesses what they will tell me. Look, can you imagine if I get somebody in custody for a bank robbery and I tell this guy, okay, dude, I know you did the bank robbery. I wasn't even in the bank. I got a video of you in the bank. I don't really have that, but I tell him that. He says, okay, well, I was in the bank, but I wasn't doing a robbery. Okay. Well, in the video, it shows you filling out the demand slip, the demand. You had the demand note. Oh, no, I was just filling out a bank deposit form. Okay. Well, then I saw you on the video go over and scream at the teller. Well, she was really rude to me. I was, I was, that's why I left. Now, has he admitted to doing a bank robbery? No. But am I going to use those statements in trial? Uh, yeah. Because he's putting himself in the bank at the time of the bank robbery, doing the things the bank robbery allegedly did. Even though he has not admitted to doing the bank robbery, he has given me several reluctant admissions that I can now use in trial. Well, it turns out there are people in the first century who did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was, but they do give us reluctant admissions that we can use in trial. These are the non-Christian sources for Jesus in the first hundred years. And if you look at them, and I just made a list on one side of everything they give us, so Thallus here, for example, does not believe that the darkness that occurred at the crucifixion of Jesus was supernatural. His claim is that the darkness was simply an eclipse of the sun. But in order to say that that was not supernatural, you have to reluctantly admit there was a guy named Jesus. And there was a crucifixion of Jesus, and it was dark. You just are attributing that darkness to some other cause. Not only that, Tacitus tells us a lot about the Christians. I'm not going to read through all of this with you, but he, he basically claims that there were Christians who were accused of burning down and causing the problems that eventually burnt down Rome, and that Nero persecuted them. And, and in fact, that, that there was a guy named Christus who was the source of all of this, and he was even penalized under Tiberius under a governor named Pontius Pilatus, and he was suffered the maximum penalty. And that his followers then were also persecuted. In other words, you can get all of this data from a guy who does not believe anything about Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this guy, Tacitus, as he writes it, is he says that after they did this, they... they, they, they killed Jesus, a most mischievous superstition was checked for a moment. What do you think that is? The resurrection? Could be. I don't know. I'm not going to go that far. But you can see how much data we're collecting about Jesus from reluctant admissions. Here's another one from Marbar Serapion, who is a Syrian philosopher who is talking to his son, writing to his son about three other philosophers in history. And he includes Jesus in the list along with Socrates and um, Pythagoras, only calls him the wise Jewish king. They murdered their wise king. And after their kingdom was abolished, God rightly avenged these men. The wise king lived on in the teachings he enacted. So we can add a few more data points from reluctant admissions. Let's finish here with Phlegon. And I'll just put a couple of quotes from him up here. And, and what you get is our, our, really the power of Jesus, at least as it was, as was told in those days, by people who didn't believe any of it was true. You would at least have the claims, though, that you could put on the list. Now, take a look at that list in red. 
That is everything you know about Jesus if you didn't have a single gospel, a single Christian document, including any of the church fathers. If everything had been destroyed and all you had were the non-believers, this is what you would know about Jesus from history. Not bad. It's not everything, but it's not bad. There's a bunch more here I can't uh, share with you. We do this uh, in, at Biola. It takes me 17 hours. So I'm, on the bright side, I'm not going to hold you here for 17 hours. We're just going to power through. The other question is, uh, is this accurate? Now, look, I, I've had cases where we, we couldn't answer a number of important questions. This guy killed his wife, and I got rid of her body, and I could not answer how he killed her, where he killed her, what he did with her body. I couldn't give those answers to the jury. But we knew he was guilty because he kept on changing his story over time. And if you're going to change your story over time, there's a good chance you're not telling me the truth. Now, you might have noticed in the Gospels that they are different from one another. In fact, there are places where you're like scratching your head and thinking, like, how many angels are at the tomb? How many? How many? Two? One? It depends on, on, on which Gospel. How many women are at the tomb? Two, three, one, I'm hearing all of it, right? It depends on the gospel. Why are there these differences between the gospels? And do those differences mean that these aren't telling us anything true? There's only one thing I ask when I get called out in the middle of the night for a murder, and the dispatch is on the phone, it's 2 a.m., and they're like, okay, here's the address, here's where you got to go. I always ask one thing and one thing only, and it's simply this. Are there officers on the scene? I'm sure there are. Great. Have them separate the eyewitnesses. This is the only request I make before I leave. Everything else I'll do when I get there. But I need them to separate the eyewitnesses because if I don't and I get there, there will be four or five people who will tell me exactly word for word the same thing because they've been hanging around for an hour. I had this happen on a case when it was so rainy, they put all the witnesses in the back of one unit so they would stay dry. Well, then what happens when I get there? I don't have the robust, allegedly, apparently contradictory accounts that I expect because I'll just tell you, you can put two witnesses and they can see the exact same event and they will report it in some ways remarkably different. And you're thinking to yourself, this thing just happened two hours ago. How could you be this messed up in just two hours? Right? But it happens. And I see differences between these accounts. And you might think to yourself, man, I'm not even sure I could even reconcile these differences. But trust me, there was a robbery. And they both saw it. And the fact that they may have different accounts does not mean the robbery did not occur. Now, I'll just tell you this. You can put it in your hat. Witnesses never, ever, ever agree. Ever. You'll not, if you're waiting for that, it'll never happen. It never happens. I, I do this for a living. So when I first read through the Gospels, it didn't bother me. I'm actually grateful for it. It's a good thing because if your witnesses are agreeing perfectly, something's up. And you probably can't trust them. Do you think that the skeptics of Scripture would be any more inclined to believe it if it all agreed? But I will tell you this. I do worry about whether it's changed over time. The claim here is that whatever Jesus was over here, by the time it makes it into your Bible, he is radically different. There's no Jesus who walked on water over here. This is just preaching Jesus who said a few nice things. By the time he gets over here, he's rising from the dead. Something similar is sometimes claimed in criminal trials. You have a trial where you have a courtroom 30 years later, and I bring into the courtroom a piece of evidence that came out of the crime scene, that casing. Do you see it? And I bring it into trial 30 years later. There it is. Now, the question, I've, I only brought it into trial for a reason. There's an extractor pin mark on the casing, which identifies it to the extractor pin in the defendant's gun. 
So that extractor pin mark will identify this as an important piece of evidence tying my suspect to the crime. Make sense? But here's the problem. How do you know when that extractor pin mark was actually first appeared? What if it actually only appeared after someone pulled the casing out of property and etched in the extractor pin mark and puts it back in property? And the people who follow this guy have no idea that he's altered the evidence. And by the time I get there, I bring something into trial that has been altered and I just didn't know. Couldn't something similar happen with the Gospels? You have a Gospel written, say John's, and by the time it gets into the... How many times has that been changed? I've got 336, 360 years, 333 years to work with. Think about that for a second. How many hundreds of times has this changed until finally the people who bring it in have no idea, they're just like me, they have no idea that it's been altered over and over and over and over again. Well, I can tell you how we check this in, in criminal trials. What we do is we ask a question. Was there somebody back there in 1980 who saw that casing at the crime scene, the first officer who arrived? Yep. Did you take a picture? Okay, good. Polaroid. You guys remember what Polaroids used to be? Raise your hand if you know what a Polaroid is. Same people who know what a Carmen Ghia is. Have you noticed? And so the question is, does this Polaroid show the extractor pin mark? Does he write a report in which he describes picking up this piece of property? And does he describe seeing the extractor pin mark on it? Now, he's going to give it to somebody like my dad. He would either take another Polaroid or write his own report describing if there's an extractor pin mark. He's going to bring it to the crime lab. They're going to take a look at it, take great photographs, do all kinds of stuff on it. We'll know if it has an extractor pin mark. And by the time I pick it up, I'll have to write a supplemental report describing what I'm picking up from the, from the property. Does that make sense? So now, each of these people is like a link in a chain from the past to the present. That's why we call this the chain of custody. And for every important piece of evidence in a criminal trial, you will have to show the chain of custody. Is there a chain of custody for the New Testament? Yep, I'll show it to you. Here's our crime scene. Here's our courtroom. First officer at the scene is a guy named John, and he writes a supplemental report about everything that he sees. But how do we know what's in his report? Well, who is the next officer he's going to give it to? It turns out he gives this report, he gives his eyewitness account to three personal students, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. These three students of John sitting at his feet hear what he has to say about Jesus. If we didn't have John's gospel, we could ask these guys, what did Jesus tell you about, what did John tell you about Jesus? Is Jesus less spectacular? You know, not, not born of a virgin, didn't work any miracles, right? Didn't rise from the grave. That's all been added later. Well, how could we ask these three guys? Well, lucky for us, they became leaders in the local church, and they wrote to local congregations, and these letters survive. So we can actually read these letters to see. Now, we don't have anything from Papias, but we do have seven from Ignatius, one from Polycarp. So now we can look and say, okay, Ignatius, does your stuff match, John? Ignatius, does your stuff match Polycarp? Polycarp, how about yours? Does it match? We can cross-check to see if the story is starting to change. Two of these guys, Ignatius and Polycarp, had a third link in the chain, which is Irenaeus. They were, he was the personal student of Ignatius and Polycarp. So we could look at what he has to say, and we can say, okay, well, what, is you, what, what did you learn from your masters? And we can check and see if the story's any different. He actually quotes all kinds of New Testament books, and he has a list he makes of 24 that he is using with his student, a guy named Hippolytus. So we can check these links in the chain going down through history to see if the story is changing. Now, Hippolytus dies in custody. I actually think that his student is Origen, but I'm not going to go that far to make that jump right now. But remember, if the first links in your chain match the end, you're really good to go. But I could actually chase the chain down much further from Paul all the way to Tatian, from Peter all the way to Eusebius. Just going heel to toe, 
teacher to student to see is the story changing in the chain of custody. Now, if you lost all of your New Testament, those four eyewitnesses, those gospels, all the work of Paul, but you had left their students, what would you know about Jesus? Is he different? Is he less miraculous? No. He's actually every bit as miraculous as he is in any other text. All of these attributes of Jesus are in the work of the first links in the chain. You're stuck with this story of Jesus. Now, at the risk of going a little bit, uh, I, I need to show you something. Do you realize that if I made a claim about the Constitution of the United States, you could actually go to Washington, D.C., go to the corner building, the archive building. You could go in that archive, and you could see the Constitution of the United States to see if I'm lying to you. Do you realize we do not have a single original of any New Testament document? Did you know that? We do not have a, an original Gospel of Matthew. We don't have an original gospel of Mark, Luke, John, Acts, none of it. As a matter of fact, the first copies we have are sometimes hundreds of years later. The most ancient copies we have are sometimes in the fourth century. And when you compare them to one another, they don't match. Bart Ehrman loves this. He's written an entire book about it. Let me show what he says. They kind of look, some of the differences look like this when you compare the ancient manuscripts. I'm just going to give you 25% of one page of the Gospel of John. Here it is in John 6. Here's one of the things that Bart Ehrman talks about when comparing the ancient manuscripts we do have of John. One, this is the ESV, puts it like this. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. But there is another ancient text that has the word yet in it here. Now you might say, well, it's not very much doesn't change meaning. Well, Bart would agree with you on that. There's not a single variation that changes the meaning about Jesus. Not a single variation that changes any orthodox position of the church. But there are thousands of these one-word differences. Let me show you more on the same page. How is it this man is learning when he has never studied? Another ancient manuscript puts it this way. Knows his letters. Same idea, but two ways of saying it in two ancient documents about the same authority. How do we know? Why did the ESV translator put it in like this? They could easily have put it in like that. That's the way they put it in, but why did they put it in like this? Are they just willy-nilly deciding what they want to put in the translation? This is what Bart is claiming. Here's another one on the same page. If anyone is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Another ancient version says his will. Now, granted, this is not a big difference, right? But what Bart says, and it's very telling in his book, and it's persuasive for young people, is he says, when we compare these documents, we have more variations between the texts than we have words in the text. And that's true. Dan Wallace is not related to me, but he's a friend. He'll tell you that, that, that statement's actually accurate. And it does not matter. Let me show you why. I have a daughter-in-law named Olivia. When I first uh, met her, she came over to my house for dinner. And I used Siri, right? She texts me on the road. I'm driving. I hear a text come in. It's from Olivia. And all she's saying is, thanks for dinner. So I used Siri to read it. I said, read me the text. Reads me the text. I don't know if you like Siri or hate Siri. I'm not sure if I like Siri or hate Siri, okay? But then I asked Siri to text her back. All I wanted to say back to her was this. I just met this girl. She's now my daughter-in-law, but she wasn't then. But Siri does not understand the word Olivia. Oh, yeah. So I end up texting her back this. 
Yeah, I love you. She's never, she's only met me once. I'm 30 years older than her. Now, I will tell you, this happens all the time with Siri, right? Sometimes it thinks it knows what I'm trying to type. And it fills in words. I had this happen with my son, David. So my son, David, he, he's in med school. He's actually a doctor now, but he was in med school. And it was very expensive. And so at the time, he'd be broke all the time. So if he was to text me with these strapped for cash, I would text him back. Okay, I'll meet you next Wednesday, um, 4 o'clock, Main Street, that, that, that Starbucks there. I'll reading, bring you a check for $5,000. Here's my text. Two typos. Number one, there's no five where well, it should be a five. And then there's starving here instead of Starbucks. Because that's stupid series. Siri thinks that she knows what I'm trying to say. So I'm going to type him again. That's not going to do. Because he can't even understand that. So let's do it one more, one more time. Here's my second effort. Okay. Uh, weakness instead of Wednesday. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm a perfectionist on this. Let me do it again. Oh, now I've called him a nerd right there. Uh, he's got a good sense of humor. Don't worry about it. Oh, so there you go. I'm going to do it again, though. I'm going to do it again. Oh, now I'm running naked down the street here. This is not good. One more. Oh, it's meek instead of me. Now, look, at this point, I think David... It's like over it, okay? I think he understands what I'm trying to say. But no, no, I'm a perfectionist. I'm a perfectionist. So I don't, it's not right yet. I will text the holy dog snot out of this kid. I will. I will. Until I get it right. I'm going to text him over and over and over again. Now, at some point, he is like had it with this, okay? Stop texting me. I get it. Enough already. Why? Where, what, where am I going to meet him? What, what business? On what day? For how much money? What time? How do you know this? You don't have a single inerrant text here. As a matter of fact, you now have far more variants than you have letters in the text. Forget about words. Yet you think you know how to return to the original. Why? Because in the end, the number of variants doesn't matter. The number of copies does. And this is what we have this embarrassment of riches. It's not as though the translators are saying, well, I've got one document or the other. Well, let's just pick this one. No, they're using a, a massive list of documents and comparing them to one another to return to the original reliably. No, we do not have the originals, but we can return to the original reliably. Finally, it's really going to come down to this issue of bias. Now, why would anyone lie about anything? We have a bar in our town called the Crest Bar, and this is a biker bar, and we send all of our new guys there, and the FTO, the field training officer, he will get out of the car with these folks, and he will look at them and say, hey, what are you going to do with this? This new kid's got to handle this bar fight because you're going to have two people who are lying to you here, two drunk guys who are lying. And all lies come down to one of three motives. I don't know if you knew this or not. They're the same three motives behind any murder. There's only three. Only three motives behind a theft. Only three motives behind any bad behavior. Any sin you've ever committed, you've only committed for one of these three reasons. These are the only three reasons. If you think you've got a fourth reason, you're wrong. There's only three reasons. Here they are. You ready? Money. Drives a lot of stupid. Sex drives a lot of stupid. And the third one's more nuanced and it catches a lot of other stuff, and that is the pursuit of power. 
When one gangster shoots another gangster because he's been disrespected, what is that about? It's about authority, respect. It's a nuanced version of power. Now, this is going to be helpful to us because if you're suggesting that the disciples are lying to us based on some biased motive, what is it? There's only three. Are they doing it because they're trying to get rich? They're trying to get girlfriends? No. Now, Bart would say they're trying to get power. That by writing this document, by saying these things, they become a leader in a small, new religious community, and they have the respect of their peers. Really? So Paul, who starts off with the authority, power, and respect of being taught by one of the best-known Jewish rabbis of his day, a Pharisee of Pharisees who has the power and authority to draw papers to execute Christians, he decides one day, I'm going to jump out of this position of power, authority, and respect. I'm going to jump in with this band of Christians and get my butt kicked all over the entire planet for the next 35 years. Hopefully someday I'll return to my position of authority, power, and respect. Hey, that's possible. But it's not reasonable. Now, you know, in the first century, if you were a leader in the Christian church, you were kind of like this deer in this cartoon here. That is a bummer of a birthmark, Hal. (laughs) Only you had that thing on your forehead. Because you know how these, now, we were just talking about this. uh, Dr. Ted here, he's going to tell you, he he is actually the the person who guided a a, a PhD project from my friend Sean McDowell, where we looked at just the deaths of the... Uh, disciples. And like Sean, I am not convinced that every one of these stories is actually even true. But I do know this. When it was clear that they were looking for somebody to recant, because you see this even under Pliny the Younger, when he's trying to get Christians to recant and write about this to Emperor Trajan, you see that that's a very early effort being made. And there's no documentation, no evidence whatsoever that any of these people ever recanted. That to me is interesting. Now, you might say, well, I would die for what I think is true as as a Christian. So what? That has no power at all. Lots of people will die for what they don't know is a lie. But this is the one group that would know if it's a lie. They're in a different category. The fact that they're willing. Now, we started with this. We asked the question, can you trust anything this guy says? I don't think so. Now, we're going to ask this question. Can you trust what the gospel authors say? Well, we build the case the way we build every case. We build it on the basis of cumulative indirect evidence. We start off with, is it early enough? I think I've given you enough reason to believe it's early enough. Is it corroborated? We only talked about two very, very brief uh, of all these, but I'll send you the rest. I think that's actually a reasonable inference. Has it changed over time? I can say emphatically there's no evidence of any change over time. And finally, can these guys be measured in a way to see if they would be telling us the truth or if they have a bias? If so, where is it? In the end, this is what I had to do. Same thing I do in every case. And when I finally got to this point, I said, okay, I'm in. At least I'm into the point where I trust that the Gospels are telling me something true about Jesus. That'll give you belief that, but it won't give you belief in. But I at least had to go through belief that before I could get to belief in. And I had to knock down these barriers. When people ask me, why are you a Christian? I have the same response I always do. First of all, do you have two hours? Because I'm going to have to go through that list. I don't do this on Twitter. Right? You just can't. I won't even do it on any social media. If I know you well enough to take the kind of time necessary, we'll talk about it. But I can tell you this. I am not a Christian because it works for me. Because it doesn't work for me. It doesn't. Maybe it's just me being in Los Angeles County. I don't know. 
But this is not an easy worldview to hold. And, and you know, it's really easy before. I, I, you know, I was always hitting the mark. It's really a lot easier to, to, to throw the dart against the wall and just draw the bullseye wherever the dart lands. That's a lot easier than having a bullseye there first. So this has been a lot harder for us. Susie and I were together for 18 years before we became Christians. We've been together 22 since. If you ask Susie, she'll tell you the first 18 were a lot easier. This is a lot harder. But, and I'm also not a Christian because I was trying to fix something that was broken, because I wasn't. And I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I'm just a Christian because it's true. And that should be enough for all of us, because on a good day or a bad day, it's going to be true. True. 